Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Thank you for coming. We welcome you this morning, and uh, we pray that your time together will be uh, enjoyable and beneficial for you this morning. Um, The series, Wisdom of the Proverbs, is um, working our way through the book of Proverbs. We are in chapter 8 this week, and so I think next week Pastor Andy will be back, and he'll pick up with chapter 9. But for today, I would suggest that you um, either on your mobile device or in your own Bible, or if you don't have any of those, there's our, there are pew Bibles in the racks in the seat in front of you. We'll have occasion to read from chapter 8 of the Proverbs. Since I'm preaching on it, we ought to read it probably. So, um, but we won't have it on the screen because it's just uh, too much text on the screen. So you'll need to have your own version if you want to follow along. Um, as Pastor Andy has reminded us, the book of the Proverbs is um, not necessarily promises, although there are lots of statements in there, but they're more like observations on how life generally works. And the main theme of Proverbs is wisdom. Um, There's an important distinction to be made, though, and Pastor Andy has reminded us, and I'll remind us again, there's a difference between plain knowledge and wisdom. And to illustrate that, I, I saw this floating around on Facebook this week. We should probably take a look at it. Here's, here's a good description of what knowledge is. Knowledge is knowing, for example, that tomato is a fruit. That's a fact. That's knowledge. Wisdom, however, is knowing not to put a tomato in a fruit salad, right? You don't see fruit salads with tomatoes in them, even though tomato technically is a fruit. So that's being wise. You don't want to mess up a fruit salad by putting a tomato in it. There's one other step that we can add to that. Philosophy is wondering if ketchup, therefore, can be considered a smoothie, right? (laughs) Well, we won't get into philosophy today. We'll try to avoid that. But we will talk about wisdom, maybe a little bit about knowledge. Um, The best way to approach chapter 8, I found, I think, is we're just going to do kind of an extended Bible study and make some life applications to that um, rather than a full-fledged sermon or anything like that. Now, when we think of Proverbs, we usually think of clever sayings, wise sayings, some things that seem sometimes just pretty, um, you might say, obvious. Um, For example, here's one proverb, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. That's a good wise saying. There's another very famous proverb, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Pithy, quote, compact, very wise, good sayings. Then there are other proverbs that are a little more colorful, you might say. For example, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman who shows no discretion. A little bit of wittiness there. Or here's one for us. Seldom set foot in your neighbor's house. Too much of you and they will hate you. Or another more famous one, but still pretty uh, graphic. As a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. Pithy, short, quotable, um, that's what we think of when we think of Proverbs. Chapter 8, however, of Proverbs is a different animal from some of these short sayings. It's not a series of disconnected wise sayings. Uh, There's a bit of a flow to it. Um, It's actually a profile of wisdom itself, or I should say wisdom herself. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. 
the personality profile that we see of wisdom here in chapter 8 uh, delves into some of the underlying principles of wisdom and some theological issues. Some that are so significant, they were debated like 800 years after it was written. And we'll talk more about that later too. To begin with, we need to recognize that in chapter 8, wisdom is personified, that it is portrayed as a real person and a woman at that, which in the patriarchal culture that the Proverbs are written in, that was a bit unusual. And uh, we'll see about the importance of that later. Now, we've seen wisdom portrayed as a person in earlier parts of the book of Proverbs, but it's taken to a new level here in chapter 8. And rather than having a wise man like Solomon, who is often quoted as the the author of most of the Proverbs, um, wisdom here is called Lady Wisdom. Uh, She speaks for herself. It's not Solomon or a father giving advice to his son, but it's wisdom speaking on her own behalf. And she'll be speaking directly to us today. She uses the first-person pronouns like I, me, mine, and so we'll see about that. Now, when the scriptures, the Proverbs, were originally written in the language of Hebrew, when they were translated, the Proverbs, from Hebrew into Greek for the early Christians and some of the Jews around the time of Christ, um, the Greek word was used for wisdom, which is called Sophia. Now, we're going to refer, because so much of chapter 8 talks about wisdom or is wisdom talking as a person, we're going to call wisdom Sophia for the purposes of this message. And we're going to talk about, or we're going to look at four different images of Sophia. So the first image for Sophia that we want to talk about comes from the first 11 verses. And that, um, well, okay. In your, in your handout, in your bulletin, <clears throat> if you follow along in the outline there, there's a blank for you to write in the name. You'll see images of four different Sophias. And your job is to fill in the last name, and if you want to, you can write down what they're famous for, okay? But um, no cheating, no looking on the internet for the answers to who they are, okay, until the end. We'll, we'll reveal the answers at the end. But we're going to talk about different images of Sophia. And the first one comes from the first 11 verses. Now, I'll read the first three verses here. This be- begins the chapter. Does not wisdom call out? Does not wisdom, does not understanding raise her voice? At the highest point along the way, where the paths meet, she takes her stand. Beside the gate leading into the city, at the entrance, she cries aloud. Now that's our narrator, the the, the wise person talking about wisdom. And then suddenly it shifts to wisdom herself, or Sophia, talking herself to us. And she says, to you, O people, I call out. I raise my voice to all mankind. You who are simple, gain prudence. You who are foolish, set your hearts on it. Listen, for I have trustworthy things to say. I open my lips to speak what is right. My mouth speaks what is true, for my lips detest wickedness. All the words of my mouth are just, and none of them is crooked or perverse. To the discerning, all of them are right. They are upright to those who have found knowledge. Choose my instruction instead of silver, and knowledge rather than choice gold. Choose my instruction, for wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing you desire can compare with her. So now wisdom is taking over. Sophia is talking directly to us. Now, she talks about, or she is mentioned at the beginning as being placed at the intersection of where the roads are, on the way, the highest point of the way. 
And that's what Proverbs is all about, the way of wisdom. That is the pathway or the life journey of wisdom. Someone who is wise will follow this path. So we see that Sophia places herself on the way where other people can see her, a very public place at the intersection of the roads, at the gates of the city, at the square, town square, where all the business was done. She's out in public, and she's not hidden. She's not hiding herself. Um, She doesn't hide in the shadows or behind secret codes. You don't have to have a special code ring to understand what wisdom is all about. She makes herself accessible to everyone. She's not hard to find. And the invitation that she gives is to everyone, young and old, rich and poor, educated or foolish, well, especially the foolish because they need wisdom the most, right? Um, And regardless of your ethnicity, all mankind, she says, to all people, and without regard to your class or your gender. In fact, I've mentioned already how interesting it is and unusual it is for a main character in the Proverbs to be a woman. And so a woman is speaking, Sophia is speaking to all of us, men and women alike. And her words are beneficial to everyone. She um, multiple times talks about how important or how good or how proper her words are, how true all of her words are. So even though uh, Sophia can be found easily right on the way, she also says that she's the only source for wisdom. All these other avenues for seeking wisdom um, are going to lead to folly. But for her, um, she makes a rather exclusive claim that she alone has true wisdom. And so we better listen up. So our second image, then, of Sophia comes from the next few verses, uh, verses 12 to 21. Are you following along? You got somebody, something written in your blank there? Okay, Sophia holds the key to knowledge and power and justice. I'll read these verses where she's talking about herself. I, wisdom, dwell together with prudence. I possess knowledge and discretion. To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance evil behavior, and perverse speech. Counsel and sound judgment are mine. I have insight. I have power. By me, kings reign, and rulers issue decrees that are just. By me, princes govern, and nobles, all who rule on earth. I love those who love me, and those who seek me, find me. With me are riches and honor, enduring wealth and prosperity, My fruit is better than fine gold, and what I yield surpasses choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness, along the paths of justice, bestowing a rich inheritance on those who love me and making their treasuries full. Um, She's not afraid of bragging on herself, is she? Sophia. She relates to those who seek her not through the power of judgment or justice, but through love, which is the greatest moral principle of all, which in this section we find that Sophia is presenting herself as the holding the moral truths of the whole universe, basically. Um, Now, against when the Hebrew scriptures were written, um, especially the Proverbs, they come um, kind of in contradiction to the surrounding pagan culture. For example, the Babylonian culture their view of the world was, um, well, the world was just a chaotic mess. And uh, it's basically a war between different gods and goddesses who are battling for control of creation and the world and of people as well. Um, The Jewish creation story, as we heard the very beginnings of it when Angie read it, um, that's very different because there's really only one God, not a bunch of them fighting amongst each other. 
And this one God brings order out of chaos. He doesn't delve into it and, and use it. He brings order out of chaos by speaking, speaking creation into being. The Lord said, let there be light and there, let there be animals and green plants, all those things. The power of God's word brings creation into existence. Well, in these verses, we see that Sophia claims to be an or- agent of order, moral order in the universe. Um, she does not have anything to do with chaos. In fact, she does what God does. She brings order out of chaos. And she is the true power behind kings and princes and governments. And furthermore, she upholds and keeps the, the whole moral universe of the moral of the universe going. Um, she's a source of justice, and she judges pride, arrogance, and evil. All of these things um, lead to what she calls success. Um, it might include financial blessings. She makes some reference to that. But if it does, that's kind of beside the point. The main reward is not in the form of gold or silver, as we heard. Uh, Her fruit is better than fine gold, and what she yields surpasses choice silver. Um, The real reward is not in the form of gold or silver, but it's in righteousness and in justice and simply loving Sophia. The act of loving Sophia's wisdom is its own reward, you might say. So we think about what Sophia is claiming for herself, holding the moral universe together, making sure that people are, see, are able to find justice when they can. Um, all of these things aren't just things from the time of Solomon, um, shortly after the time of King David. Um, I think we can take a look at Sophia and learn something from her today in our chaotic times that we live in today. Um, Think about the chaos and injustice that you see in the papers and hear on the news all the time. Um, The suicide bombings that we just heard about this morning in Baghdad and a couple days ago in Dhaka and before that Istanbul and before that, you know, other times. Um, Relationships, they're tainted by jealousy or resentment um, or fear as much as they are by love. And yet Sophia offers love for those who are seeking it in her. And our definitions of success in our culture can be kind of skewed, I think, sometimes, don't you? Um, Based on either popularity or our financial wealth, um, rather than Sophia's values of righteousness and justice and love. So in this second image, we see Sophia presenting herself on a pretty high level. Um, She has the functions of what God did in creation. Um, In fact, she's approaching sort of a level of divinity, according to the way she describes herself. But what she's described herself as so far is nothing compared to where she goes next. So let's look at a third image of Sophia. Proverbs eight twenty-two to 31, I'll read those for us and listen to the claims that Sophia makes for herself. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old, I was formed long ages ago, at the very beginning, when the world came to be. When there were no watery depths, I was given birth. When there were no springs overflowing with water. Before the mountains were settled in place, before the hills, I was given birth. Before he made the world or its fields or any of the dust of the earth, I was there. I was there when he set up the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizons on the face of the deep. When he established the clouds above and fixed securely the foundations of the deep. When he gave the sea its boundary so the waters would not overstep his command. And when he marked out the foundations of the earth. 
Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. So here we have a picture of Sophia being present with God even before the creation was created, before the, the waters and the earth and the land and the animals, Sophia existed. She places herself <clears throat> up there pretty high. She says six times that she existed before creation. Um, the order of creation, if you notice the way she described it, is always upward from the watery depths to the mountains and the hills, then the fields, and then to the heavens. So her movement in thinking about creation is always moving up towards God. And she gives order and meaning to life. The chaos that was existed before now is brought into shape and into order. She was part of that when God was doing creating, his creating. And she's also a source of joy. You see, notice that she celebrates and rejoices in three different relationships. She says, I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world, and delighting in mankind. So her three relationships that she finds joy in are with God, the creator, with his creation, and with humans, the apex of God's creation. There's a, a, a Catholic monk who was famous in the 1960s. His name is Thomas Merton. He wrote a poem in honor of Sophia. He called it Hagia Sophia. It's Greek words for holy wisdom. Um, and here's what he said about Sophia and her role in creation. Sophia is God's sharing of himself with creatures, his outpouring and the love by which he is given and known, held and loved. She is in all things like the air receiving the sunlight. In her they prosper. In her they glorify God. In her they rejoice to reflect him. In her they are, they are united with him. He was rephrasing and making kind of a, a praise towards Sophia and all the things that she does and did with God. Well, a fourth image now of Sophia, image number four, comes from the last few verses of the chapter, verses 32 to 36. Here's again, Sophia is still speaking. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Blessed are those who listen to me, watching daily at my doors, waiting at my doorway. For those who find me find life and receive favor from the Lord. But those who fail to find me harm themselves. All who hate me love death. Again, she's making some pretty exclusive claims. All those who find me find life. Life is to be found in Sophia. Interesting. She invites us to enjoy that same true life. And she recognizes that the life that she, that she can give comes originally from God, from the Lord. So we've re <clears throat> reviewed, let's review the first three images. Sophia is found in the way, the way of wisdom. She holds foundational moral truth in her hands. And she is fundamental to a meaningful life. The way, the truth, and the life. Have you heard that before? Interesting connections there. Now let's revisit um, what Sophia says about herself foreshadows what is said in the New Testament about Jesus Christ. Remember the passages that Andy read for us? Angie read for us? Here's from Colossians chapter 1. 
The Son is the in image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Sounds a lot like what Sophia was claiming for herself, doesn't it? Here's what John had to say at the beginning of his gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, John uses the word, word. The word became flesh. And if we put that into the Greek language, that word is logos. Logos and Sophia were connected by the early Christians immediately after reading Psalm, uh, Proverbs 8 and reading John's prologue, the beginning part of John's gospel. You can't help but see how similar those descriptions are of Sophia and logos, right? Um, wisdom and the Word, Sophia and Logos, share lots of the same quality. So many that some people identified them as the same person. The early Christians uh, equating, equated Christ with Sophia. For example, you can see this in the famous and beautiful Hagia Sophia church building. I think we have some pictures of that. Istanbul, again, where Hagia Sophia is this great and beautiful cathedral largest one that was built in Christendom for like 1,200 years until one was built bigger in Spain in the Gothic times. Here's the insides. The, the dome is 182 feet above the ground, uh, the biggest dome that was in Christendom for many, many years. All of these things, Hagia Sophia, again, remember, means holy wisdom. This is the church of holy wisdom, and it was dedicated to Jesus Christ. In fact, um, this is the biggest and most well-known, but there are four Hagia Sophia churches in Istanbul. And throughout the Mediterranean world, there are 24 different churches called Hagia Sophia, Holy Wisdom. So you can see how important wisdom was to the early church, especially those who spoke Greek, the ones that came out of the Greek culture, because they were um, full or they were so familiar with Greek philosophy that stressed this idea of the Logos, a pre-existent, um, all-knowing, all-pervasive kinds of uh, power and knowledge, which the early Christians saw connected so quickly with Sophia, as described in Proverbs 8. Now, John chapter 1 says all these things are true of Jesus, the Word. But one thing we have to recognize is that Sophia in Proverbs 8 is a personification, that is, someone, a, something being portrayed as a person, but not really a real person. Sophia is a personification, but the Logos, the Word became flesh in the real person of Jesus. A major distinction to be made there. Sophia, everything that is said about Sophia and that she claims for herself is really embodied and fulfilled by Jesus, who is the real living Word, the real wisdom and the power of God, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians. So if it's wisdom that you want, then Jesus is the person that you really need to know. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And that's where Jesus, the Word, takes a little bit different path than Sophia, the holy wisdom. 
That is, Sophia is an idea, a personification, whereas Jesus, the living word, is a real human being. Um, this all became very um, important in the early Christian years when they were trying to figure out just who Jesus was in relation to God the Creator, God the Father. Um, in 325 AD, they had to have a big council meeting to get together to talk about this. Was Jesus really a real person? If so, was he always in existence? Um, or did God make him as part of his creation? There were some claiming both sides. And so they had to get together and figure out who Jesus was in relation to God. Was he made by God or was he with God or was Jesus God himself? And this is where Proverbs 8, which was written 800 years before, came into being, came into play. They had to refer to this idea, this personification of Sophia, when they were talking about the preexistent Jesus, the preexistent Christ. Finally, they came to say, they came out with a creed, a statement of beliefs that said, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things visible and invisible. This is called the Nicene Creed because they came from this town of Nicaea. Let me read a few more statements where you can hear echoes of Sophia in the description of Jesus. We believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, begotten of the Father, the only begotten, that is, of the essence of the Father, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, both in heaven and on earth." You hear the echoes there of Sophia in the description of who Jesus was and in relation to God the Father. Some outlandish claims, perhaps, um, even about Jesus. If someone who knew Jesus as on this earth um, and saw him, heard him teaching, and then heard about these claims about Jesus being in existence before creation and being of the same substance as God, that's outlandish, hard to think about. Um, and it's always been difficult for people to accept that. Paul was writing in the early years of um, church history. In 1 Corinthians 1, 22 to 24, he, he, he refers to this difficulty in believing who Jesus is. He says that what I preach is foolish to the Jews who ask for signs from heaven, and it's foolish to the Greeks who seek human wisdom. So when we preach that Christ was crucified, the Jews are offended, and the Gentiles, that is the Greeks, they say it's all nonsense. But to those called by God to salvation, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. God has united you with Christ Jesus. For our benefit, God made him to be wisdom itself. Christ made us right with God. He made us pure and holy, and he freed us from sin. That's what Paul wrote about in about around 60 A.D., so, what I'd like for us to do is to think about how we connect with those ancient Christians who saw in Jesus the connections to Sophia and God the Creator, God the Father Almighty, who created heaven and earth. So, we're going to recite together a creed. We won't recite the Nicene Creed because it's complicated. We'll go with a simpler version. This is the Apostles' Creed. So, if you would, let's recite together the Apostles' Creed. Do we have that? We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, 
suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. This creed has united Christians all across the world, all across time, all across the centuries since Jesus came. And that's what unites us together as this one congregation, and it unites us with all the other Christians in the world today. And as an act where we actually symbolize and act out what we believe, what we say we believe, we're going to participate in what we call communion. Communion means coming together. Again, celebrating the things that we believe together, the things that we do together as Christians. So just as Sophia calls all people to come to her and learn from her, Jesus offers his own invitation. We read about that in Matthew eleven twenty-eight: Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. So amid the chaos in our own lives, with whatever our burdens are or our joys might be, Jesus invites us to come to him, just as Sophia invites us to come and learn from her. So if you're seeking Jesus or have already placed your trust in him, Jesus invites you to meet him in communion. So if you would join me, I'd like to pray for us, and then we will prepare for communion. Let's pray. God of creation, God of all wisdom and power and love, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that you would open our eyes to see your wisdom at work in the world around us. As we come to your table for wisdom and guidance, grant us also strength to live. And as we come for pardon and forgiveness, grant us also transformation into Jesus' likeness. And as we have spoken the words of the Apostles' Creed, let the grace of this Holy Communion and your Holy Spirit make us into one body in Christ, so that we can worthily love you and serve you in the name of Christ and for the sake of the world. Amen. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and said the blessing, and then he broke the bread, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then after the supper, he took the cup. He gave thanks for it. And he said, drink this, all of you. This is my blood in the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Whenever you drink it, do this in remembrance of me, which is what we will now do. Would the musicians and my servers join me on the platform here? Thank you. As the musicians play, and once the servers are in position here on the floor, we invite you to come down the two side aisles here, and you can go to either station and receive communion there. You'll take a piece of bread from the tray and then dip it into the cup. If you are seeking gluten-free elements, we have those available as well at the tables or in the, in the trays, so you can partake of those as well. After you partake of the the bread and the juice, then you can return to your seat by the far outside aisles. And again, we remind you that this is for those who belong to Jesus' body and are seeking Jesus and His grace and wisdom as well. Um, It's not the table of the Church of the Nazarene or Emmaus Road Church. Um, It's Jesus' 
table, and so everyone is welcome and invited. Let us pray one more time. Father, those of us who have been redeemed and are being redeemed by your grace and are being made into a new people by water of baptism and the Holy Spirit, we bring before you these gifts. We ask that you would sanctify them by your Holy Spirit, that they would be for us the body and the blood of Jesus, our Lord. May Christ be present with us just as he was present with his first disciples at that Last Supper. And may he be known to us in the breaking of bread. Amen.